Well, hello and welcome back to Deconstructing the Bible. My name is Jason Steffenhagen, the Associate Minister at The Well, United Methodist Church in Rosemont, Minnesota. And we are in the midst of Season 2. This is Episode 2. And we're taking a look at some parables of Jesus. And so we're going to dive into a, another parable here today in a few minutes. But first, I wanted to invite you to connect with me on Zoom later this week. On Thursday at 1 o'clock, I will be doing a Zoom small group. We're going to be breaking down, asking questions, diving into this parable a little bit more. So take a listen to the podcast, and then if you want to connect, we can do so together on Zoom at 1 o'clock on Thursday afternoon. I'd love for you to reach out and connect with me, Stephenhagen at thewellmn.church. So Stephenhagen at thewellmn.church if you want a link to that Zoom invite. Also, it'll be in the notes section of this podcast, so check it out there. Before we dive into the parables, last week I mentioned how much I appreciate a good story, whether that's a movie, whether that's a book, and there's a certain type of story that has always kind of caught my attention and been one that I've really enjoyed. I love dystopian stories. I love stories that are set in the future, but not a future where it's all utopian, right? It's all beautiful and perfect and wonderful. I love a good novel, a good movie, a good story, a good, you know, series that is forecasting the future as this potentially bleak existence and what is going on and how we got there. I love those stories because those stories have a way of teaching us about our present circumstances. That's why they exist. They exist to teach us about our present circumstances so we don't move into that type of future. So some of the stories that I have really appreciated over time are things like 1984, the book 1984 by George Orwell, or Fahrenheit 451, or the book Brave New World. I loved both the books and the movies, The Hunger Games. Um, The book The Giver is a good one. There's another book out there that I haven't read, but I watched the movie, and it's called Children of Men. And so there's a number of these dystopian stories out there, and there's far more than I just listed right there. I'm just listing some of the top, you know, top 10 versions of these, right? So 1984, Fahrenheit 451, Brave New World, The Hunger Games, The Giver, right? These are some of the, like, Hall of Fame versions of these dystopian novels. Now, the thing about a dystopian book or story or movie is they aren't describing how things will be. So they're not like, they don't actually know the future, right? They're not describing how things will be. They're prescribing the circumstances of how things may be if we don't heed the warning that this story is trying to give us. So dystopian stories are trying to warn us that the future is going to look really bleak if we take our present circumstances and live them out even further. You know, for instance, The Hunger Games is a great example of how they are putting up on screens and broadcasting mass devastation to people as a form of entertainment that also has this way of trying to remind people of something they should have learned. But it's an entertainment and it's brutal. And what is that telling us about our present circumstances, I think it's telling us, be careful what you're celebrating. Because when we are watching TV or reading things or we're, we're out there celebrating the 
the crumbling of something. We're watching lives on reality TV get decimated by these broken relationships, and we're finding it entertaining. What does that say about who we are? And maybe The Hunger Games has something to say about that, that when it's taken to its extreme, it's really awful, and it can be very, very damaging. So they're not describing the future, they're prescribing the circumstances of how things may be if we don't heed the warning. I think that there are a couple parables like this. There, there's parables that are a creative look into the future to help us recognize the shortcomings and the injustices of our own present circumstances. Jesus tells us one of these parables in Luke chapter 16, where he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. So let me read you the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and then we're going to dive in. This is from chapter 16 of the book of Luke, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. The rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. The rich man then said, Then, Father, I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. The rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. There's something interesting about gates in the Bible. We see here that Lazarus is laying by the gate of a rich man. Many of the poor and the blind were placed by city gates to beg. And Jesus does some of his uh, miracles at those same city gates. Jesus at one point calls himself the gate. I love the way Rob Bell puts it. Gates can keep people out, but gates can also keep people in. Lazarus which means God has helped, has only been helped by God. Lazarus has been ignored, disregarded by the rich man. He's left for dead and only the dogs licking his sores are his company. Upon death, God's angels bring him into the presence of community, lounging around the banquet table with Abraham. Contrasted with this is the rich man who is incredibly wealthy. Purple is the most expensive color because it requires the most amount of dye. Lavish meals were not common, even for someone with wealth, but this rich man was feasting every day. Scholars believe that 
during this time, the uber wealthy, those with the most wealth, were likely using bread scraps as napkins. They would wipe their mouths with bread and then throw them out with the trash. These would have likely been the scraps from the rich man's table that Lazarus was hoping to eat. The rich man's wealth had provided an extravagant way of life, and it had provided him the ability to have what separates so many people in our world, ignorance. He was able to be ignorant of the hurt and the pain around him. He is able to simply disregard the poor man at his gate. But upon his death, he finds himself not at Abraham's side, but in a place of torment and isolation. Now, before we get too far, let me make a couple of quick comments um, to help us navigate where we're going. Some people believe this parable to be describing of what happens when a person dies. The righteous go to heaven, the sinners go to hell, where there's experienced torment. But it's clear by the interactions we see, the talking back and forth, a desire for Lazarus to come from Abraham's side down to Hades to quench the man's thirst, that we're not exactly describing what happens in eternity. What we have isn't a description, it's a prescription. Jesus is telling a story that helps us see what happens when we live in isolation from one another, what happens when we don't see the injustices of our world. Scholars believe that it's likely that this parable was not a parable that was aimed um, simply for the poor to hear, even though there may have been some inspiration or some energy that would have been gained if you were poor and you heard this parable, believing and hoping and trusting that you will be united with God and you will be united with Abraham and be able to experience the fullness of community finally. But it's likely that the original people hearing this parable were like the rich man, like the five brothers, people who were benefiting from the systems, were benefiting from the social class system of the first century. So let me point out a couple of things that I think are worth talking about. Number one, I think that God gives us what we want. I think that God gives us what we want. The rich man wanted to be isolated, to ignore, to disregard the pain of Lazarus. He had been dealt a winning hand and used it to keep himself from needing to be in relationship with those he saw as less than himself. He wanted this in life and he received it upon his death. His existence in Hades and the interaction we have only exacerbate the privilege and classism that the rich man experienced in his life. The first interaction that he has after being in Hades is he asks Abraham to order Lazarus to quench his thirst. Tell Lazarus to come down here so that I don't have to be as thirsty. He doesn't see Lazarus as an equal or someone to be respected. He still sees Lazarus as a servant, someone to be disregarded, someone not worthy of full humanity. He then asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers to warn them. Again, Lazarus is still just a servant, only able to do the rich man's bidding. I love what Abraham says to the rich man in this moment. He reminds him that his brothers, like like all of us, have Moses and the prophets. And what do Moses and the prophets do? They repeatedly warned and reminded people that God is the defender of the oppressed. God has a preferential option for the poor, like Lazarus, 
who immediately is brought into loving communion. God is on the side of those who are poor. God is on the side of those who mourn, those who experience the injustices of our world. God has a heart for the hurting. The rich man's brothers wouldn't even believe it if someone came to them from the dead. This parable is about how we see the world. It's about how we divide up the world. It's actually a fairly political parable because politics is how we arrange ourselves in society. That's the definition of politics. Now, we can get into other definitions of politics about how we vote and and how we have different governing systems, but ultimately, it's just about how we arrange ourselves in community and in society. And this rich man saw himself above Lazarus. And even in death, he is still ordering him around, telling him what to do, demanding that he be served by Lazarus, demanding that he go to his brothers, demanding that someone go to his brothers from the dead. And he's still operating in that classism, that political hierarchy that has been created. This parable is about how we see the world. It's about how we divide the world into the haves and the have-nots. There are those who are in and those who are out. What divides people is what this parable is trying to help us see. And there's something about wealth that is at play here. What impact does wealth have on the way we see the world, the way we divide it up? Money is playing a role in this parable. So number two, we read this parable and wonder, maybe what is upside down? What is countercultural here? You know, we talked about that in the first episode that the parables of Jesus are, are flipping upside down. They're disrupting the status quo. And so we read this parable and we might wonder, what is upside down here? What's countercultural? What is being disrupted by the status quo? You see, in the first century, your wealth and your privilege, your position were a divine right. God had granted you that status. Many believed that if you were if you were in the wealthy category, if you were on top of the social hierarchy, it was because God's favor was upon you. And subsequently, if you were poor or destitute or diseased, there was something that you must have done, some sin in your life, or that God's favor was just simply not with you. And so, one would expect that if one is rich in life, one would end up enjoying the banquet table with Abraham, enjoying the reclining at the table with the rest of the wealthy, enjoying what started in life and continuing on into eternity. And you would expect that of all the people to end up in Hades where there's torment, it would be the one whose life was obviously cursed by God, was obviously not in God's favor, and it would have been Lazarus. So, we see Lazarus is the one to experience the immediate bliss of communion, and the rich man is sent to Hades. And this would have been a theological role reversal. Even the naming of the poor man as Lazarus, which means God has helped, would have raised some eyebrows. Interestingly also, this is the only parable where we have a name. Now, some people are wondering, is this the same Lazarus that was, you know, that Jesus raised from the dead in the book of John? And the answer is, we have no indication that this is at all being used 
in the same way that it's more likely that Jesus was using the name Lazarus because he was trying to help people see how special that name was and how the identity of this person was the one who God had helped. And so naming the poor man, naming the one who had nothing, the one who the rich man didn't even see and wasn't even willing to help out as the one that God is going to help would have been the name that would have raised the most eyebrows. You know, there's, like I said before, there's something interesting about God and money. Jesus said we can't have two masters, but there's always been people willing to do theological gymnastics to keep the two together. There's always been those willing to try to say, oh, it's not a big deal. I mean, of course it actually makes sense. Like the rich are, are in God's favor. They're the ones that God has predestined, that God has divinely given the right to be in this social standing. And so we come up with these theological reasons why we order the world the way we do, why our politics and our ways of arranging society is the way it is. And as, as easy as it might be for some of us to read this parable and just say, man, this rich guy just does not understand generosity or kindness. This rich man is just so grotesque to still think he can order Lazarus around. Well, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. I don't think that we've evolved that far beyond this way of thinking. How many of us believe that we should be credited for what we have in life? How many of us are very willing to take full praise for our standing in life, the things that we've earned, the the car, the house, the you know the the things in life, the education that we've gotten, the positions, the privileges. How many of us tend to think that we've earned those, that we've arrived at those because of our work ethic? Now, speak nothing of any of the privileges we may have, or opportunities that have always been at our fingertips, or any of the systems that have always been tilted in our favor. In his commentary on the parables of Jesus, Arland Hultgren writes, This parable encourages private charity, but is that all? The parable also implicitly exhorts the disciples to see the conditions of those who suffer and to see them as persons created in the image of God. I love that, to see the conditions of those who suffer and to see them as persons created in the image of God. Moreover, since systems, governmental and economic, are part of the cause of iniquities and then perpetuate them, those same systems are needed to fix them as well. I love that Hulkrin doesn't just stop at personal, private charity. He doesn't just stop at seeing the conditions of those who suffer and needing to see them as people made in the image of God but he also recognizes that there are systems at play that are the cause of these inequalities, these iniquities. And these systems are perpetuating those iniquities. That the separation between the haves and the have-nots, the in and the outs, the poor and the rich, these, these, the caste system that we have in our world today is being perpetuated by the systems of our world. And it's those systems that need reforming, they need looking at, they need attention because we need to use the systems of our world to help fix those very systems that impact people. How can we 
see the world through a different lens. That instead of trying to do the theological gymnastics to put God and money together as if the rich are there because God ordained it, but instead to recognize that, okay, your wealth, your privilege, your position, your power, it's there. Now what? Now what? What does Moses have to say to those with position, power, and privilege? What do the prophets have to say to those with position, power, and privilege? What are the prophets, what are Moses saying to me as a white, male, cisgender, heterosexual pastor? What are Moses and the prophets saying to me in all of my privilege and my power and my position? How am I seeing the world? How am I dividing the world up into the haves and the have-nots? How am I looking at my fellow human, human being? Am I seeing them in the fullness of the image of God? Are they worthy of dignity and respect? Are they worthy of every opportunity? Are they worthy to have the system be completely turned upside down so that it doesn't just work for me, but that it works for all of us? What would it take for me to see the world differently? Jesus here is telling a dynamic story. He's telling them a future of how it will look when we get what we want, when we divide the world up into the haves and the have-nots, the wealthy and the poor. And when we want our isolation, we want our ignorance, God is going to give it to us. (laughs) And that might be the scariest thing imaginable, that we could actually get what we want. Maybe we want the wrong thing. And this parable is helping us see differently. What happens when we start to see differently? We can't worship God and money. Instead, we have to ask the question, what is all of this for? And how am I bringing about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? A kingdom that is for the least of these, a kingdom of a God who is on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized, a God who has always fought on behalf of the poor, a God who mourns with those who mourn. What does it look like to join God in the renewal, the reconciliation, and the resurrection of all things? These are the questions we need to ask. These are the stories we need to hear. Thanks for joining me for Deconstructing the Bible. This is episode two of season two on the parables. Look forward to being on this journey with you. Thanks. Thanks.